Hey, Chuck, you sound great. So, uh, okay. We can, we can go ahead. Um, just so you know, too, we're, uh, we run Pacific Takes, which is the um, Pac-12 arm of uh, SB Nation. So that's where this will be airing. Okay. Hello. You play to win the game. Put your hands up. You play to win the game. You play to win the game. I said hello. 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 You play to win. I said put your hands up. Why not? Put your hands up. Let's go to work. You gotta play like your hair's on fire. You start it's 2019, and the Pacific Takes podcast returns. In a very special and unique way, today we welcome New York Times best-selling author Chuck Klosterman as our guest. Chuck is well known as one of the world's best pop culture writers, and he's the author of Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, along with 11 other best-selling books and countless articles. He also happens to be a huge fan of college football. Klosterman released a new book in July of this year. It's called Raised in Captivity. Be sure and check it out. Amazing read. It's a collection of short stories, including one about an eccentric high school football coach who has his team run only one play on offense over and over again. That sounds like Jim Harbaugh on Stanford against a Pete Carroll coached USC team where he ran the same play, I think, 11 times in a row. Anyway, we're huge fans of, of Chuck and his writing, and, and we noticed a couple of years ago that he moved from New York City to Portland, Oregon, and knowing that he's a big college football fan and now living in Pac-12 territory, we wanted to have him on to discuss Pac-12 topics and overall college football topics and, and, in fact, a host of other things ranging from hypotheticals to socialism in college athletics. Anyway, let's get this season going with a big guest to start things off, Chuck Klosterman. Enjoy. Okay, go ahead. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Uh, as a college football fan and now a resident of Portland, I thought it'd be good to have you on to talk some Pac-12 football and a little college football overall. Uh, the first thing we'd love to talk with you about is a coach who actually made his name up in the uh, great state of Oregon, who I know you've had a lot of admiration for, talked about a lot, uh, Chip Kelly. Uh, I know you're very pro, pro-Chip pro whenever he came up on uh, Bill Simmons' podcast, so curious to get your thoughts I think to get it started do you think Chip Kelly should have stayed in college football uh, and never gone to the NFL well that's an interesting question I don't necessarily think that when you look at his early period in the NFL in Philadelphia um, they were very good and uh, I I'm not necessarily sure he couldn't have succeeded as an NFL coach over time. It seems like he's more suited to be a college coach for a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, when you look at UCLA now, um, the whole thing seems to hinge on whether or not he can find a quarterback to do the things he likes to do. Okay, and there's the likelihood of that happening at the college level is obviously much greater than the pro level because you don't have to draft guys. You can just go and look for them. Um, 
I've talked to a few people who said uh, or suspect that as innovative and as progressive as Kelly seemed at Oregon, it is possible that maybe the things he did have uh, are now actually maybe a couple of years behind a lot of the more uh, progressive sort of offensive coaches, which is an interesting thought. I, I, I just always assumed that he would kind of be on the fringe of things, but you know, his ideas were effective and a lot of them were adopted in other places. And uh, as a consequence, a lot of defenses has seen what he does more often. And it, it does seem like there might be some things he has to add and for one interesting deal. Uh, you know, like there was a period where Nick Saban had a, you know, his defensive playbook. And at the back of that playbook for a while, he specifically had pages just for Chip Kelly in Oregon. It, 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 he believed that they would, there was a high likelihood that they would end up meeting in a playoff or in a championship situation. I wonder if that's still the case. I don't think it would be because so many of the things Kelly does uh, have become a little normative. But like when you look at the team this year, you know, in the North, uh, the Pac-12, there's really only one bad team. In the South, might only be one good team. So if UCLA finds a quarterback or, or, or develops a quarterback, I mean, they could win the South. I think that's very possible. Chuck, I would love to see UCLA versus Alabama in the national championship. <laughs> well... Maybe not that. I wouldn't make them go that far. I mean, the Pac-12, and I bet you guys talk about this all the time. I mean, it's pretty fascinating the position the Pac-12 is now nationally. I mean, there was a couple years ago where uh, I kind of felt that they were going to become the second best of the Power Five conferences. But now you look at it, you know, it's like, well – the fact that Clemson alone is in the ACC kind of puts them second to the SEC. Uh, the Big Ten is pretty balanced and pretty deep. Um, so now, it, it, you know, the, the Pac-12 has so many of the interesting coaches, but they do seem sort of uh, in kind of a, a dangerous position in terms of, of how significant they can be nationally, you know, uh, um, I, and in a specific sense, I think that's very true for Oregon. You know, I mean, we talked about Kelly a little bit ago and, you know, basically he made Oregon from a sort of a program no one considered to a uh, very strong program to a national power. And this year, because they have the best quarterback in the conference, because of just sort of the way things have played out, I think Oregon has to win the Pac-12 or they're going to drift back into the middle of the pack in terms of how uh, meaningful they are as a, as a football factory. I mean, I really think that the pressure is on them. And and if I had to bet, I, I don't even think they'll win the North, but I really think they have to. Yeah. So if you uh, now as an Oregon resident, have you been following Oregon uh, more closely as a program? Well, I followed them pretty closely when I lived in New York. You know, uh, I'll, I think one thing, I don't know if people on the West Coast know this, but um, one thing that I think spurred Oregon's rise is uh, there's a network uh, out in New York. Like It's like called the Yes Network. It's what the Yankees are on and the Knicks are on. And when I first moved there in 2002, they would replay 
the Ducks games at midnight on this channel. Uh, it was kind of paid for by uh, the Nike guy. Uh, right. You know, the, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, he basically made this happen. So, like, when we come back from the bar, if there was no other game on, we'd watch the end of the Oregon Duck game because it started at midnight Eastern. Um, so I, I've always been pretty intrigued by that program since they kind of shifted from a school where it was like, oh, Dan Fouts went there. It was like the most meaningful thing to consistently being good year to year. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I, I guess I follow compared to the average person, I follow all the conferences relatively closely. I mean, I follow the Mac relatively closely. So I, I don't know if it's real. I don't know if living here has really changed my relationship to Oregon because, uh, you know, I, I, I really like living here in Portland. It's a great life, but, uh, man, do I hate Pacific time. It has ruined my ability to watch sports. Really? I, I feel like, I've only lived on the West Coast, uh, and I feel like I feel like if I I couldn't move to the East Coast because I couldn't stay up till like one a.m. to watch, especially as a you know West Coast sports fan, I couldn't stay up till like one thirty a.m. on a Tuesday to watch you know like a Washington Arizona State game. Do you have Do you have Do you have kids? No, not yet. Well, I'll tell you what. There really isn't a worse time for me than in terms of how much energy and attention my kids need than 5 p.m. to 8.30 on a Saturday. I, you know, the, the idea of, of, of me, I, you know, I can usually watch one of the Pac-12 games, you know, like whatever it would have been that late game on the East Coast, you know. Um, and it's often Washington State, it seems like, you know, I, I like watching those games. I, I, it's, it's, but uh, so much of the schedule makes it real hard for me to, to sort of to, to follow this the way I used to. I mean, um, when I was single and living on the East Coast, I loved those 1030 games. I mean, I really look forward to that. I, I, and that's why I never understood the insane argument people would make. That like, oh, you hard for, you know, Christian McCaffrey or whatever to win the Heisman because the game is too late. It's like if you're someone who follows college football for a living, which you are if you're a Heisman voter, the 1030 game was the one game you could really watch. There was nothing competing against it. You have nothing else to do. It would seem as though even if you were working that day actively covering a football game for your newspaper or your magazine or your website, you would be home or back at the hotel at 1030. Um, I miss that. I miss that for the NBA as well. I mean, there was just nothing better than like, Oh, I kind of go to bed now. Oh wait, the Lakers are playing the Warriors and it's, it hasn't even started yet, you know? So being on the, being in this time zone, I think, when my kids are older or whatever, when Mac, when I'm like, you know, in 10 years, uh, it will be great because, you know, the games start real early and the NFL starts at 10 and all these things. And you can watch the whole day of these events and still watch a movie at the end of the night. But right now I fucking hate the fact that I'm in Pacific time. I, it drives me crazy. Chuck, I want to give you a uh, credit in the same breath. You mentioned uh, the PAC 12 after dark and Maction, which is just our two favorite things. <laughs> 
those Tuesday Mac games, there's really nothing better than that in some ways. Like, granted, yes, those are not the best teams. It's not like the, you know, like the, 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 you know, Auburn, Alabama or anything like that. But on a Tuesday night to see like, you know, Marshall and Ball State and it's like 45 to 38 all the time. And you look at the stands and there's like 72 people in there. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's sleeting half the time. The whole Mac area seems to be uh, kind of consumed by sleet for some reason. But I mean, a Tuesday night football on Tuesday, that's just, I, I love it. I just, uh, uh, it, it, when I was a little kid, that would have been my dream to know on a Tuesday night I could watch a college football game. But hey, um, I, one thing I think that you're giving these capital J journos who are supposed to be up late watching these games on the East Coast a little too much credit. I think they're more concerned with probably if there's free soda in the press box <laughs> than uh, actually doing their job watching those late Pac-12 games. Well, I don't know. I mean, even even if that's the case, you're not in the press box at eleven o'clock at night. Like that is those were the easiest games for me to see. So I've never believed this idea that the reason it's hard for someone on the West Coast to uh, to win the Heisman or whatever, or for a team for like Washington or whatever, to have um, uh, you know uh, a national profile because people aren't seeing those games. That makes no sense to me. I do think it's very intriguing that there has been talk of some of these Pac-12 games starting at 9 a.m. Is this is this going to happen? Like 9 a.m. Pacific? Is that a, is that a real thing? Well, yeah, it's a kind of a good transition to something else we want to talk to you about. And the Pac-12 right now, I think, is desperate to try to catch up with these other conferences. And that argument of no one can watch the Pac-12 because if they put games on it, eight o'clock Eastern time, everyone's watching Alabama versus, you know, LSU or Georgia, Florida. And yeah, so the PAC 12 seems like they're going to do whatever they can to go for a TV audience. And that out here, that's as people who go to every game, it's really hurt a lot of the fans to go to the game because they're putting a lot of them at seven 30 or 11 AM or so it's really hard for, you know, actually going to the game. But I think it's all an attempt to make sure they can get eyeballs on those games. And I think it's going to happen. And it's a curious question, uh, curious to get your take on if you think the Pac-12 can ever catch up to the SEC most importantly. But also I think the Big 12, the Big, the Big 10, and the ACC have taken a, a lead over the Pac-12 as far as respectability and just pure talent and, uh, you know, competitiveness of the conferences do you think in a bigger picture the Pac-12 is ever going to be able to catch those conferences now okay well a couple things um first of all I would argue that the Pac-12 is a a better conference than the Big 12 because and I watch a lot of Big 12 football but uh the the defense and the tackling in the Big 12 is at times comical. I have a good friend of mine whenever we're watching, like, you know, we're all watching these games and we're texting each other. Um, he often calls the Big 12 pornographic. He feels it's like pornography because it, it's just, it's it's almost like trying to titillate people with this version of football they're seeing. So I would put the Pac-12 fourth among the five. Will they be able to catch the SEC? No. They, they, I don't. I don't think it's possible that that the Pac-12, for more than one given sort of odd season, uh, could ever be better 
than the Southeast Conference. Could they be the second best conference in the country, though? I think that's possible. I mean, I, I uh, if you know, if if Clemson was not in the position they are now, the ACC would always be sort of a mixed bag. Where, um, you know, uh, the, the the football is is pretty good out there, but um, with kind of the decline of Florida State, I mean, they could always come back. Miami, you never know these things. North Carolina is always a weird situation. There's all these different schools there where where they seem like they could be great, but maybe not great enough to win a title. And then kind of Clemson became this different program. Um, to me, logically, if we just think of this, the tradition of the schools and all of these things and the sort of the relationship that football plays at them, it seems like the SEC should always be the best conference. It seems like the Big Ten should be the second best conference and the Pac-12 should be third. Um, right now, I, that is not the case. I would place the Pac-12 fourth. But yeah. so I think, I mean, well, if, if the question is what would they have to do? Well, they certainly have the the most interesting collection of coaches. Um, now, does this make does this mean they have the best coaches? Well, I don't know about that, but they have interesting coaches. And that is a real key element to recruiting, just the kind of guy who, who if you're a young high school kid, you meet and you're like, there's something about this that seems innovative or or he has a relationship to, to getting me to the pros or whatever the case may be. So they've done a pretty good job of getting coaching talent. Yeah, calling Herm Edwards and Mike Leach interesting might be uh, <laughs> the understatement <laughs> of the century. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just. Uh, you know, Washington State's a great place for Mike Leach to be, too, because it is it's a strange place where you wouldn't think anybody honestly would be like, I'm excited to live there. Uh, but someone can come to you and say, well, uh, if we succeed at football, you are the community. I mean, Texas Tech was the community of Lubbock in a lot of ways. It still is. I mean, if Washington State um had an undefeated season or went 11 and one or something. I mean, the, I think that entire half of the state would basically become interested in one thing. Um, and, and, you know, he just, (laughs) he's as fascinating a person as you're going to find, as long as we're talking about fascinating people. The thing is, it's like, can they get through their non-conference schedule without losing to some random nobody, which, you know, that, that, seems to be uh, very often the biggest problem he has. I do not understand. It's such a unique problem to have. I don't get it. But Yeah. yeah. I think one thing that it kind of ties into as far as uh, the power of the Pac-12, it may have just been from growing up in Pac-12 country and a family that was uh, big Washington fans, but uh, my family was always you know, hammering the point that the Pac-12 was the progressive conference, as in knew they were always a little bit ahead of the curve. We had NFL quarterbacks that would come out, and it would give an advantage if, you know, a Pac-12 of Washington or a Washington State or a Cal even or a UCLA ran into, you know, a a Southern power that they wouldn't be prepared to go against these wide-open Pac-12 offenses or these attacking defenses. Uh, As someone who's not from the West Coast, do you have – did you ever have uh, the perception of the Pac-12 as being that kind of progressive, uh, ahead-of-the-curve conference in college football? Well, I mean, absolutely, but not just because of the Pac-12. I mean, if you look at Portland State, uh, 
I mean, that's like where Miles Davis came from. That's where the run and shoot was invented. If you look at Boise, which I don't know if you consider that to be part of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I, I, I guess technically it isn't because it would be a long drive from Boise to the ocean, but it's in the region. The high school sports are on here. I think would throw, would throw the football more than most high schools would, particularly in the seventies and the eighties. So that that's totally true. I mean, I, I just think in almost every kind of cultural capacity, the Pacific Northwest is maybe a step or two ahead of the rest of the country. Though, you know, the thing about a sport like football is you can't draw up a game plan that makes people disappear. I mean, it's still ultimately a physical game. And and that is why, you know, for, you know, you can move back through time from the, you know, the Pac-12, back when it was the Pac-10, back to the Pac-8. There have been a variety of very good teams, but really only one who often was in contention for the best team in the country, which is USC, who frankly probably played the most traditional form of football of any team in the conference. So it's uh, you can drop all the X's and O's you want, but sometimes it comes down to the Jimmy's and Joe's. Well, yeah, or just just the fact that like uh, a lot of the. A lot of the things that make – I mean you, I mean, using the, the, the Big 12 as an example. I mean like you know, you, you, you watch these teams and they score 40, 50 points or whatever. And then you think like, well, okay, like I, I really like Oklahoma State. I think they're a very fun team to watch. But uh, I often think to myself, it's like you know, if you drop them into the SEC West – like uh, not only are they not scoring as much as they score, it's like maybe their coach gets fired because I just I don't it doesn't it seems like they could kind of be embarrassed by people you know they could get beat real bad by somebody uh, in a way that that you know doesn't even happen to Mississippi or even to Vandy or whatever. So um, I it's uh, the with Peterson at Washington now I, you know I, I think that. You know, they went to the playoffs that one year, and at the time, I was like, "Well, this is just going to how it's this is how it's going to be now." That Washington is probably going to be the third or fourth best team in the country uh, most years. That hasn't quite happened. I mean, I guess it just it hasn't happened. I'm not sure why that is. It's almost as though the teams he's putting together at Washington are almost interchangeable with the teams he was putting together at Boise. Like his best teams at Boise could have went seven and two in the Pac-12. They absolutely could have. They could have went eight and one or whatever. And that's kind of what he's doing now. Um, so it seems as though his success doesn't seem that connected to who he's recruiting. I mean, on paper, he's definitely getting better talent than he was when he wasn't in a Power Five conference. But I'll, I'll be curious to see if it's like if he's if he just sort of hangs around as you know one of the better teams in the North year after year, and maybe has one season where everything comes together and they go back to the playoff and maybe get to the title game. I don't know. I mean, he's you know this is why I mean why I just part of the thing about the Pac-12 is like you, you look at, you go through schools by school and coach by coach. It always seems like there's the potential for these guys 
to win a national title, even though most of them have not come close. Yeah, I think there's been – I've had some really interesting and innovative coaches who've had a lot of success outside of USC in the past decade or so, going back to Stanford and Harbaugh and Shaw and Chip Kelly when he was at Oregon and now Peterson at Washington. But it always seems like those programs just can't quite not only get over the hump and win a national championship, but also stay as kind of like one of those teams that's one of the top five teams every year the way Oklahoma, Ohio State uh, – you know, Clemson and Alabama have become. Uh, to me, one of my big things is wondering if more in the future of kind of the culture and the evolution of the West Coast might hold some of these programs back because I follow recruiting pretty closely out here and I just don't, one, a lot of the high school talent is leaving uh, the region the way it, it never was before. And especially in the trenches, I feel like I don't have the data right in front of me, but there's a lot less offensive linemen and defensive linemen uh, elite recruits in those positions that are coming out of the West. Do you, now that you've lived out here, do you feel that there's maybe a cultural kind of evolution issue that might be at play in the future with the Pac-12 trying to compete with the SEC? It's all these vegans on the West Coast, Jake. <laughs> well, you know that you're you're, you're kind of joking, but you're kind of right. I mean, like there's there there are parts of the country now where if you're an intellectual parent, um, or even in a lot of ways, you know, people just say, if you're a good parent, you don't want your kid playing football. You know, if, if you live near Portland, if you live near Seattle, um, Los Angeles is different because, you know, there's certain some parts of L.A. where where high school football is still real central. But in San Francisco, in that area, not as much. Um what I think is is happening a lot is, okay, let's say you have a kid, a, an athletic kid who's tall, okay? You think this kid could be not a giant, but 6'4", 6'5", 6'6". If that kid gets heavily involved in football at a young age, they're going to look at his frame and they're going to be like, we can put meat on this kid. We can, this kid can be, you know, he's got a big wingspan. Uh, he can be an offensive tackle. He can, he can have a life as a left tackle in the NFL or whatever. Now that kid is more likely pushed toward basketball. And instead of putting weight on, it's like, well, let's just make him toned and let's, you know, let's, let's, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be more fun for him. I mean, certainly, uh, as a, if you're a 10th grade kid, uh, playing power forward on a basketball team is more fun than playing offensive lineman on your JV football team or whatever. So that might be what you're seeing. I mean, I, I think that there's probably some truth in that. Like, um, you're good. It's, these coaches are going to have to go to the places where uh, there's still like a social pressure for athletic boys to play football. And that's the South. That's parts of the Midwest. Um, I would say it is in the Southern part of LA. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, I used to kind of make jokes about it, but like the Isle of Samoa puts a lot of guys into the NFL. There are just these pockets where, um, uh, like the way football is in Texas is still, hasn't changed that much, you know, even in like the, the more sort of urban areas like Dallas and Houston and stuff. It's, there's not, 
I don't want your life. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, Coach Bud Kilmer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Kilmer runs a hell of a program here in here West Canaan. <laughs> I mean, I, I do also wonder, though, if there's going to be uh, some pretty drastic rule changes to football coming in the next 10 years that could play to the Pac-12's favor. Uh, one thing that I sometimes hear mentioned um, is that particularly if there's growing evidence that the biggest issue with CTA with CTE is not the kind of the high profile concussions, but the micro concussions, how can football exist if you if, if you're trying to eliminate micro concussions? Well, there's only one way to do it, and that is or, or one or, or the or one or one of the ways is to eliminate the three point stance so that everybody would have to be in a two point stance that would pretty much make the movement and the flow of the game um, similar to Canadian football, where, you know, where you only have three downs, so every run's either a draw or a misdirection. There is no power running. If this were to happen to American football and that there would be no three-point stance, a lot of the systems you see run by the coaches in the Pac-12 would suddenly be much more viable because uh, if – if you take away the possibility that late in the game you're just going to have to grind it up and eat up the clock, uh, then you know uh, uh, the things that you see from you know, I mean, their offense is kind of down, but the way California has been and the way Washington State is, I mean, that that, that would play to their advantage. Yeah, definitely. I mean, WSU might be in the the, the college football playoff every year if that uh, with Mike and Mike <laughs> Leach is there for sure, and I think. Uh, it kind of plays into something I've heard you talk about before overall of the future of if football, not just if football can survive, but if college football can survive. Because it feels like if football started to shrink to the point where that was a real question, college football would most likely, uh, for a few reasons, go before. So do you th- truly believe that college football is has a, a, you know, like a, a countdown clock where it eventually will not be a thing anymore in America? Well, I mean, the way that we see college football, the way college football is now, um, there might be a clock ticking. Now, here's what I think will happen. I think that the Power Five conferences and Notre Dame and a few other places um, are going to break away from the NCAA at some point. And those five conferences will pay players. And there will basically be pro football There will be a version of college football, which is basically what the mid-majors are now, what we see like in the MAC or the Mountain West and stuff like this. Although the quality in those programs will decrease uh, because anybody who uh, thinks they have a viable shot at playing in the NFL um, will go to the conferences that pay. And you will have this pro football, college football, and this kind of strange in-between ground where it'll be like semi-professional schools. The students, I mean, they may not, I mean, the players may not even be students. Like it might be that a kid signs to represent USC and he doesn't have to stay eligible or he doesn't have to do anything like that. He can go to class if he wants. It sounds like how it is currently, Chuck. (laughs) Well, yeah, I know, but... uh, but, he, but the difference now is this, like, okay, so 
So I went uh, to the University of North Dakota, but uh, but the, the football program that I follow there and the, and the one that's always been good, of course, is North Dakota State. Okay, they're a subdivision program. But if you're recruiting uh, a kid, a quarterback, and you want him to come to Fargo, well, how do you do that? Well, you say is, well, Carson Wentz went here, and he was the second pick overall. And Easton Stick went here, and he just got drafted in the fifth round by the Chargers, and he's going to make the team. They can now attract kids with the argument that the likelihood of you playing professionally is greater at a program where you're going to play uh, potentially immediately, but you're going to play definitely if you're that good at some point. Whereas if you, you know, if you're a running back and you go to LSU or you go to Georgia, you might play there four, four years and despite your talent, uh, never get above third on the depth chart. But if you create this middle ground where some schools are paying the kids and most of the schools are not, uh, there really is no argument for going to one of those smaller institutions. Like, wh why would you do it? Like, why would you go to San Diego State and play for free and, you know, have, take the same risks that you would take at Arizona State, except at Arizona State, you also get a monthly stipend and uh, you're playing against competition that is so much greater uh, that uh, the the success you might have at San Diego State wouldn't even be kind of valued, you know. So that is the future that I fear will happen. And when I say I fear it, it's not because I think it's a terrible system. I just like the system we have now. I know there's ethical and moral problems with it. I understand that. I mean, there's. I I, I don't. I never know how to sort of reflect this to other people because you say that. And the first thing they say is, oh, well, you know, you're basically saying that that something is unethical and, and, and you don't care. And it's like, well, you got to weigh these things in your mind. Like um, what it like it is not like we're talking about something where the individuals still have agency over whether or not they participate. It's like, it's like there's no one's they're not. It doesn't matter how sociological you look at it and say like well it's you know these guys have no other option they have to do this it's like that's not true that's reductionist there are always other options you know um is it weird that these kids earn so much revenue for these schools and for the ncaa and get nothing yeah it is weird you know it is a weird thing in, in some ways but my my sort of uh I don't know, my sympathies, I guess, or, or, or my position is always the most important thing for this fictional world we've created, where anyone making money is making more than they deserve. I mean, in terms of what they give to society, okay? You know, when you get right down to it, being a pretty good outside linebacker doesn't really justify you getting a free education at Stanford. If there's some kid who can't go to Stanford and all he can offer is that he's great at chemistry, well, that person still morally, I guess, would give more to society if he got the free education. But the reason these things happen, the reason that there's able to be a sport or any kind of, uh, of, of sort of a, a fabricated reality where there's a lot of money to be made is because people like the thing they're seeing. And – 
I feel like I'm the kind of person who likes college football and understands the kind of person who does, you know, a person maybe who's not like me, but the things I see in it and the things I love about it are not that far removed. So the idea of college sports kind of being robust and and successful, I mean, I think that's good for football as a whole. And a lot of the arguments against it are people applying concepts that are totally reasonable if we're talking about retail employees or, you know, coal miners or any of these other things. But sports are different, you know, and, and I accept those differences. And really, what's the difference between being a coal miner or playing in the Fargo Dome? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, uh, the Fargo Dome is louder, you know. <laughs> I think the last thing uh... – uh, we want to kind of get into on this is uh, going back to what you're talking about. I think I talk to a lot of people. I hear a lot of people who immediately when it comes to the issue of paying or not playing, uh, paying college athletes and particularly football and basketball players is kind of seeing the unjust side of it. But as someone who really follows it closely, it I think most people who do realize how complicated it is and realize that the answer to it would have to be so complex because of a lot of different things. One of those being, uh, as someone who follows recruiting really closely, I look at, you know, what classes come in and you can really see how that, how not super valuable. Most of the college football players who are brought in end up becoming to that school. I think we focus on the, the Johnny Manziel's and the, oh, yeah, the Heisman winners who are, who do generate, uh, all this revenue, but most college athletes are actually kind of a, a drain on the school almost in the scholarship that they get. So it's not as simple as, oh, we just give everyone all this money because they generate money. It's more like, well, are you going to pay your Heisman candidate quarterback uh, 50 times as much as you're going to pay your backup, you know, right tackle who might never. Well, I mean, there are that's just one of the problems there are limitless problems okay first of all what is more unjust um a kid going uh to uh say uh, the university of north carolina playing football and not being paid for it or the fact that that individual may have never been able to go to a school would have never qualified to go to North Carolina, but the fact that he plays football allows him to do that is, isn't there a problem there? I mean, the larger issue of course is, are we saying that the, are we just, are we just kind of applying? I mean, so many of the people who are, who are most vehement about, uh, about this idea of, of college kids being played are also the kind of people who would be um, real advocates of socialism. And that's great. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, I think the argument for kind of of socialist philosophy makes a lot of sense the way the world is now. But what they're really talking about is like this hard application of capitalism. Because are we only going to play football players and basketball players? Are we just going to say because there's greater public interest in those sports, those kids make money? But if you're on the crew team or if you're on the fencing team or the swimming team, well, you don't generate revenue, so you don't get anything. Or are we going to pay everybody? Well, how is that going to work? How So the money that these other sports earn is supposed to be kind of spaced out across every athlete? What about people on the quiz bowl? What about people on the debate team and the chess team? Obviously, they have something to offer. Their extracurricular activity isn't as popular as these other things, even as like collegiate wrestling, but they should be paid. 
So then some people jump in, you use the Johnny Manziel thing, and they go like, well, okay, um, well, why don't we go then to the Olympic model? Why don't we say you can't get paid to play college sports, but any money you can make outside of that is fine, you know? And when you first hear that, you're like, oh, of course, that'd be great. You know, it's like if, 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 if you can make money because of your success as a football player, you know, uh, you should be able to do that. But everyone knows, or if you think about it, what will happen immediately is some guy who you know, owns a car dealership in uh, Austin, Texas, will be like, oh, we have this recruit coming in. I'm going to have him run a podcast out of my uh, my car dealership, and it will be just once a month, and I'm just going to pay him $2 million to do this. But, you know, it's like it's not going to be because he plays football. I just think that he represents the university. I mean, that would create even a greater gap between the school's that have all the money in the schools who don't. So there is no uh, like real uh, uh, reasonable solution to this unless you just say, well, okay, college sports are just a feeder program for the NFL and the NFL has to pay for all this. Now, that would really be the only way I could see it working is if the NFL decided that they were going to subsidize uh, all these leagues, you know, these collegiate leagues. And I just don't think that will ever happen. Yeah. My next question was going to be, if you had a no pressure, but a realistic solution uh, to solving the, the pain issue, which I've thought about it for countless hours. And I, I kind of come up with some things that work and then you run up against the idea of, yeah, basically kind of what you have already where you have these boosters who, uh, you know, Alabama and uh, LSU. Sure. Yeah. And then it's going to create a, thing, a system where there's maybe like 10 teams that are only thing that matter, which might be what's already happening now. We might have already already created that, you know, just be creating a new problem or re-officially making a problem that's unofficially a problem already with, you know, illegal side payments. And you throw in Nike, Nike at Oregon and that seems like that would be – if you could officially have Nike involved, it would be a very, very strange uh, – Yeah, I mean I, I like the, the- – the only real way to do it, I mean, I mean, and this is not a viable solution because it would be almost be impossible. But I would say if you're going to pay college athletes, first of all, it can't just be the sports that make money. That's just that they're there. That's it has to be everybody, everybody who plays. And then the only way to do it is it would have to be some kind of collective decision by everyone who is earning revenue from this experience. So it is the NCAA and it's the colleges themselves, but it's also the NFL and the NBA and all those institutions. It is Nike. It is Under Armour. Um, it is, you know, uh, arguably uh, the tax bases of these communities, because if you, you know, if, if, you know, you own a, 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 a bar in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and it's a sports bar, I mean, how much of your success is dependent on the fact that Oklahoma State is there? I mean, then this is the case in pretty much any of these college towns in Athens, Georgia. It's not like everybody in Athens, Georgia is not listening to R.E.M. There's a lot of people there who go to the bar because they still care about Herschel Walker and all this stuff. Those businesses are making money off these kids in the same way that the university and the NCAA is. So, I mean... Uh, it would be a, a complete reinvention of culture, but you know, that's a popular 
idea right now. I mean, we're, we're in this kind of odd political time where seemingly um, a large chunk of the populace would like to see culture and the economics of culture completely reinvented. Uh, you know, I suppose you could argue, let's try it first with college sports and see if it works. And if this complete reinvention of the system succeeds, maybe then we can apply it to Wall Street and housing and all of these other things. You know, it would be a it'd be kind of an interesting deal if we decided that we were going to change society and the first thing we were going to change is the Power Five conferences, but who knows? We can point out Bernie Sanders as commissioner and try it out. <laughs> yeah. and- <laughs> uh, hey, you know, shout out Eskimo Joe's there in Stillwater. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Oklahoma State a couple times on the pod here, Chuck, and uh, I'm looking forward to Oklahoma State playing Oregon State, a couple of OSUs that are both wearing orange and black. That's week one. Well, those are great colors. Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, Oregon State's going to get hammered. But, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know why I, I, I've mentioned – I mean, I like Oklahoma State. I don't like it that much. I guess it's like I, I, um, I when I watch, you know, I when I used to in the in the in the, like the Big Twelve, like I was a Nebraska guy, but now Nebraska, of course, is in the Big Ten, so I was kind of left without a team. Uh, so I guess maybe I gravitate toward Oklahoma State for whatever reason. I like Iowa State too. I guess Texas is okay. What kind of state college guys do? <laughs> hey, uh, uh, Chuck, we're big fans of your work, man. And, and one of my favorite things that you've done was your hypotheticals. Um, if you don't okay, mind, okay. I'd like to kind of flip the tables and, and throw one back at you that you may be familiar familiar with, but I've altered it just slightly. Okay. Hey, you meet your soulmate. However, there's a catch. Every three years, someone will come and break your collarbones with a crescent wrench. And the, there's only one way to stop this from happening. You must swallow a pill, but the catch is that every song you hear for the rest of your life is going to sound as if it's being performed by the USC marching band. Do you take this pill to avoid the crescent wrench? Well, let's see. Uh, I mean, I guess the the first thing I would say is this will uh, significantly increase uh, the amount of time I listen to Fleetwood Mac's Tusk. (laughs) <laughs> because you know, like they're already there, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, I guess I, I always feel like in this question it's it's a tough one, but you you, you got to take the pill, you know. Um, the other thing is, you know, one of this the idea in, in the original question, it's like so even if even if you're singing in the shower to yourself, like the question was, everything will sound like Alice in Chains. So uh, it would be that even if you're singing to yourself you will sound like Lane Staley. Well, in this situation, that would mean if I sing to myself, I will sound like like a, a saxophone? <laughs> I don't know. Like there's no vocals on any of the USC marching band's music. So uh, that's, uh, that, that would kind of add a, a, an interesting twist. Uh, the other thing that would be, you know, it's like, so if everything sounds like the USC marching band, uh, if I go to say like an Ohio state game, would it sound identical? <laughs> like, would I be able to differentiate that now the Ohio state band sounds like USC? I don't know. That could be interesting for a year. Yeah. I don't know if wearing sunglasses changes the sound. <laughs> of you. But uh, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time today, Chuck. I really appreciate it. Super interesting uh, conversation. 
Uh, last last question before we head out. We'll uh, put you on the spot since you talked a little bit about who's good in the North and who's good in the South. Uh, who do you see winning the Pac-12 this year? Well, okay, I think it will be a, a team from the North, and like I think I think there's four teams that uh, could viably do so, and I don't know if any of them has uh, a real edge. I said earlier that. I feel like the pressure is on Oregon to succeed, and I think the future of their program is dependent on them winning the Pac-12. But if I had to put money down, I would put it on Washington. Although, if I was smart, it would be safer, I guess, to put it on Utah because I'm I'm relatively confident Utah is going to be in the in the the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, I don't know if I'm confident about those four schools. I'm saying Washington, Oregon, Washington State, and Stanford. I don't know if 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 any one of them has uh, a clear advantage to the North. So that's kind of a kind of a roll of the bones. Where it will be Utah unless USC really overperforms. So I guess that's my answer. So Washington or Utah seems like uh... Washington or Utah. And if I had to, if I had to pick. A dark horse, I would pick Arizona. For yeah, love that, love that dark horse. <laughs> well, I mean, because their 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 quarterback was awesome and then terrible, and he could be awesome again. You know, um, I I do think it was interesting. I remember, I think it was last year when like uh, there was some talk of the Navy head coach coming in, and uh, the quarterback as a college student comes kind of surprisingly came out and was like, I didn't come here to run the option or whatever. And, and I think it really hurt that guy's candidacy. Um, they would be a pretty tough team to beat if they ran the option. I think he made a real mistake. I, I understand why he doesn't want to run the option. He wants to play in the NFL, but he would be an extremely effective triple option quarterback. But, you know, Hey, Arizona got hot last season. Yeah, put they him might on, come out of the gates. Put him on UCLA. Run, run Chip Kelly with that cool tape would be interesting. I love it. We don't <laughs> yeah. know what's going to happen. But, again, Chuck, thanks for coming on. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, great to get some uh, insight for you on the Pac-12 this season. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, any other plugs that you would want to, uh, to include? No, if you, if you mention the book, that would be great. All right. All right. Yeah, the book, uh, like, okay. like the story about the team that ran the one play. Very cheap, uh, very cheap <laughs> Kelly. Well, you know, there are people who think that that's based on Mike Leach. I've had several people ask me that. And, you know, it's not. But uh, I, I can understand where subconsciously maybe it was in, in some ways influenced by that. But, uh, but several people have directly asked me if that's about Mike Leach. But, yeah. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Be sure and check out. Chuck Klosterman's latest book. It's called Raised in Captivity. It's ceaselessly inventive and hostile to corniness. We promise. Be sure and check us out on Twitter at Pacific Takes on Instagram at Pacific Takes. We got a big one next week. Season previews. We'll talk to you then. Let's go. Okay. Well, uh, good luck, you guys. Thanks a lot for having me on.